This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. It's the Page Turner. The Page Turner. On Life Beats with Sally Musa and special guests celebrating Sharjah, the 2019 World Book Capital. Assalamu alaikum, hello and welcome to Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Today it is a special page turner with author and relationship expert Tai Tashiro. He takes us through the science of why we're socially awkward and why that's awesome. In this incredibly insightful discussion, Tai not only tells me why being awkward is a gift, but we also talk relationships and why the idea of happily ever after is doomed to disaster. We discover how to harness the power of awkwardness and we also learn the secrets to lasting relationships. That and so much more is coming up right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. It's the Page Turner. The Page Turner. On Life Beats with Sally Musa and special guests celebrating Sharjah, the 2019 World Book Capital. What if you had three wishes for your ideal partner? What kinds of traits would you wish for? A lot of us have a whole laundry list of characteristics that include things like intelligence, confidence and attractiveness. Yet with so many possibilities, are we actually wishing for the wrong things in a life partner? In a quest to find the secret to happy and lasting relationships, Tai Tashiro has looked at the research in hundreds of studies and he shares his insights in the book The Science of Happily Ever After, what really matters in the quest for enduring love. On his recent trip to the UAE, I asked him about what we should be looking for in a life partner. Tai Tashiro, so great to have you. Uh, now, you've written two amazing books that I feel like everybody should be reading. Oh, thank you. Uh, the Science of Happily Ever After, What Really Matters in the Quest for Enduring Love. Let's start there. Why'd you write this book? <laughs> well, uh, I was actually teaching a class at the University of Maryland. It was for juniors and seniors, and there were about 200 of them in the class. It was one of my favorite classes um, I've, I've ever taught, and uh, one of the things I loved about it was even with a class of that size, uh, 200 students are usually talking at them, they would ask questions about half of the class period, um, which was great. And their questions weren't the same kinds of esoteric research questions that we concern ourselves with in psychology. They would be things like, how do I ask this girl out? Or uh, how do I apologize to my boyfriend for what, you know? And I found that sometimes I knew the answer, I knew there was research that could help, but I was really bad at communicating to them in a way that was useful and helpful. And um, that was probably the early seeds of that book. I, I thought there's all of this, really hundreds, thousands of studies um, relevant to choosing a great mate and to having a happily ever after. Um, but a lot of it stays gathering dust in the uh, library bookshelves. And I thought it wouldn't be gr uh, a good idea to try to translate that into a more engaging, user-friendly kind of book. And so what did you discover when you started writing the book? What became then your focus through this particular book? What was the, the kind of the message that hmm. you really wanted people to, to get from all of these different studies that you were kind of yeah. bringing together? Well, you know, you got to... Um, decide on something efficient <laughs> to communicate things. 
And one of the activities we do in class is I'd ask the students to write down what they wanted in their ideal romantic partner. And they would write down 19, 20 <laughs> different things, right? Kind of a smorgasbord of traits that they wanted. And then we would play this game where um, I would say, okay, so imagine there's 100 eligible bachelorettes or bachelors. And we're gonna, this person said that she wants to choose a guy who's tall. To her, that means someone who's six foot or taller. And in the United States, uh, that eliminates 80 of those 100 eligible bachelors. 80%? Yeah, yeah, only 20% are six foot or taller. Now let's say you want someone who matches in political beliefs to you. Well, that's only gonna be about a third of people. So now you've gotten rid of maybe 15 or 16 more uh, of the people remaining. And every time we did this game, after three wishes for traits and an ideal partner, you would end up with one person left or a, fr a fraction of a person left. And so that was kind of the premise of the book. If you had three wishes for traits and an ideal partner, what would be the best thing to spend those wishes on? And it turns out we oftentimes squander our wishes on things that... Tall, dark, and handsome. Exactly. <laughs> so have a bad return on investments in a lot of ways. So uh, there's nothing wrong with being good looking. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But when you look at research studies and whether those traits predict long-term happiness or long-term stability, um, you know, it's just kind of a wash. They don't really do anything for you. In fact, if you're a woman who has an attractive male partner, uh, it's, that's actually predictive of shorter relationships um, because that partner is not only attractive to you, they're attractive to other people as well. And so um, some of these things we wish for uh, aren't the things to be wishing for and other things that have a better return on investment, uh, things like emotional stability uh, or kindness really kind of fall down the list of priorities, uh, which is really too bad because those are the things obviously that really matter for finding a relationship that's both happy and stable. So apart from uh, emotional stability, kindness, that kind of thing, what else should we be looking for in a life partner? Yeah, one of the um, less than intuitive things about the personality research is people who are high in what we call novelty seeking are actually not great. Now, high novelty seekers, people who always like to do something new, who are adventurous, they're really fun to date. Um, the risk takers. The risk takers are kind of naughty and they're um, adventurous and spontaneous. And they also tend to get really absorbed in a relationship, so they're really into you. Um, but high novelty seekers also get bored more quickly with things. They're also more impulsive. Um, and of course, these are qualities that can be detrimental to the long-term health of a relationship. So it's not that any single quality, right, is a make or break kind of quality. But if someone gets, for example, someone who's a high novelty seeker, a bit emotionally unstable, and not the nicest person in the world, uh, collectively, these things are highly predictive of unhappiness and um, less stable relationships in the long run. And while all of that sounds like common sense, uh, we just have to remember that when push comes to shove, things like looks and money take precedence in how we choose partners over these qualities that are actually more important. Yeah. Was there something in that research when you were putting it all together that kind of you didn't expect to see? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe unfortunately, some of that research can get a bit disheartening. 
Um, in the United States, for example, we have a divorce rate. It's about 41% for first marriages. Mm -hmm. um, it goes up about 10% for second marriages and about 15% for third marriages. So the average divorce rate is about 50%, which is, is not great odds. Mm -hmm. There are these sociologists from Harvard who were astute enough to realize that there's a lot of people who for all intents and purposes divorce but never file their paperwork. So that's about another 10 to 15% of people. There's other researchers who have looked at couples who are chronically unhappy, so have more unhappy years than happy years together. And when you add all of this up, you find that only about one third of couples uh, live happily ever after. Um, so the odds are kind of working against us in a lot of ways. I was surprised actually at how kind of discouraging uh, that picture could be. But on the other hand, if people make good decisions about choosing partners on traits that really matter, um, they can take their success rate from about 33% all the way up to, you know, 70, 75%. So if you just do what you know is best and use the wisdom within you and stay disciplined about that, um, it doesn't have to be as discouraging as it sounds. Coming up, have you ever wondered why people seem to lose their minds when they fall in love? Well, science has a lot to say about that. Keep it here on Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. It's the page turner. The page turner. On Life Beats with Sally Musa and special guests celebrating Sharjah, the 2019 World Book Capital. Welcome back to The Page Turner and my discussion with relationship expert and author of The Science of Happily Ever After, What Really Matters in the Quest for Enduring Love, Tai Tashiro. Where do we go wrong? Because it seems like, you know, that whole term, the happily ever after, mm. you know, coming from fairy tales. Yeah. Is it, I mean, are we from when we we're young, are we being taught the wrong idea about mm. how to find love? What is it? It, it turns out it's always been wrong, <laughs> which is kind of uh, interesting. There's an anthropologist named Stephanie Kuntz, and I really love her um, research. She has a book called The Way We Never Were, and it looks at some of these myths from um, uh, previous centuries about how we thought relationships were. Or even if we look back to the 1950s, we kind of idealized that things were a lot better then. And it's just simply not true. So um, I think one of the things that has changed, it really changed around the Romantic era in the late 1800s, is that now we expect our long-term relationships to be euphoric and full of passion and joy and all of these great things. And for that to last for decades without stopping, that's just... No one can expect that of anybody, right? Uh, even, even a romantic partner. So I think our expectations for what a relationship can provide, that's where we've gone wrong. And so where, where should our expectations be now? It's interesting that you, you know, you talk about that because I just remember when, um, you know, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, they were talking about how they met mm -hmm. and Meghan Markle had no idea who Prince Harry was or anything, <laughs> yeah. but she asked one question. She said, you know, is he kind? Mm -hmm. She was like, well, if he's not kind, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. It should be a non-starter, right? right? If, if that's the case, but uh, we can all think of friends yeah. who are otherwise smart, <laughs> effective people. Who will date? Why do we lose smart. our minds when it comes yeah. to love? Well, we can actually see this now in uh, brain imaging studies. Uh, and as you might expect, the areas associated with euphoria 
and um, reward are lit up bright red, are very active. But I think the interesting thing, the most interesting thing about the brain imaging studies is that the area of our brains associated with impulse control and assessing costs or, or negativity are what we call deactivated, meaning it's harder to get those areas to turn on, essentially. So when people are making decisions about romantic relationships and they're in that butterflies in the stomach, heart pounding phase, they're making benefit decisions, not cost benefit decisions. Is there a way of like <laughs> switching <laughs> to get around on. that? Well, I think. Um, or does that just kind of subside over time? Like you have to have that initial mm. bang, you know, a, a, like attraction phase, and right. then slowly you come back to your senses? Is that how I it mean, works? Most people do. Now, um, the danger there, though, that I found is that, let's say you've invested two years in somebody, there's now this sunk cost problem where you're like, wow, I've been with them this long. <laughs> Why go reinvest in somebody else? And people end up kind of acquiescing to these situations that, that aren't great. Yeah. Now, one thing, we're, we're a little bit hopeless when we're in passionate love as far as making rational decisions, but there are studies that look at friends and family. And our friends and family in aggregate, so if you average together their observations, are actually really good predictors of whether uh, somebody is emotionally stable for example, or someone's kind. And in turn, they're much better predictors of whether this would be a happy relationship or if it would last. So that's an inconvenient truth for a lot of us. So, sometimes <laughs> they tell us what we don't want to hear, but exactly. actually they're right. Exactly. They've got our back. Exactly. And they're thinking about these things. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they're, you know, they're not, um, their brains have not shut off <laughs> the negativity centers or the cost centers. Right. And so they're able to, um, they're able to see with a lot more clarity. So that's why I always tell people, I say, you know, at some point you gotta take them out with an opinionated group of friends who have diverse perspectives. Right. Yeah, you have to be careful not to selectively choose the opinions that you only want to hear. But instead, if you kind of average together, what's the consensus here? Um, unfortunately, your friends and family are usually right. So keep them in mind. Yeah, exactly. Coming up, we talk Ty's second book all about the signs of why we're socially awkward and why that's awesome. Keep it here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. It's the page turner. The page turner on Life Beats with Sally Musa and special guests celebrating Sharjah, the 2019 World Book Capital. We've all had those awkward moments that leave us cringing every time we think about them. Many of them seared memories from our teenage years, but it appears that being socially awkward is something that many of us struggle with well into adulthood too. Tai Tashira decided to explore the science behind what makes us awkward. The other fantastic book that you have written is Awkward, the science of why we're socially awkward and why that's awesome. Okay, again, how did this all start? Because I think all of us, except we think, except for the cool kids, have gone through that stage of life. Yeah, in fact, in surveys, they find about 55% of people think that they're awkward. 55%? Uh, yeah, which is a bit high. 
probably about 15% of people are actually awkward, but that says something about how uncomfortable social life has become for a lot of us, actually, and not knowing how to handle certain situations or knowing what's expected. So it's, it's actually quite natural. So awkward moments are something that's common to all of us and we can all relate to that. That's part of what I liked about the topic was that even if someone wasn't chronically socially awkward, they could relate to that feeling of what it's like to not fit in or to have committed a social faux pas. And, and so is that how that writing that book started for you? You just thought, what is it that makes us awkward? I, I knew I, as much as I liked writing Science Happily Ever After, I, I knew I didn't want to do another dating book just because now you're stuck in a, a track, right? So after the first book came out, I had a lot of friends who had moved to New York. Some of those friends were awkward, and these were great people. You know, they were moral and interesting and bright and kind, and, but they were socially clumsy. And so I watched them at these parties um, or other social events trying to socialize and things were not going well for them as one as one might expect and i see people making excuses to go use the restroom or go get a drink or give whatever. us an example and, of yeah. these situations well you know awkward people really struggle with the first few minutes of a social interaction they might stand too close and space invade or they stand a little too far away maybe they're not making good eye contact or looking at your shoes or something besides your eyes um, they might be overly blunt at times and in aggregate, then, all of these social quirks that awkward people have can be off-putting or unsettling to other people. And so, yeah, they, they really struggle with that. And I thought, boy, that's really sad. That Well, I felt bad for my friends because I kept getting socially rejected, <laughs> I guess. I also felt it's really too bad also for the people doing the rejecting because they're missing out on getting to know somebody who's actually a really wonderful person. Really interesting people. Yeah. That yeah. are not like everybody else. Exactly, you know, and so, yeah, I hear people complain sometimes, like, oh, everyone's boring or everyone's the same. It's like, that's not true. But if you want the folks who are quirky and a little bit weird, there's a constellation of other things that you have to be cool with. And sometimes that means that the social interactions uh, don't exactly follow script. What's interesting is that what you're talking about here is actually a group of adults who are socially awkward because we normally think of teenagers. Yeah. We no normally think of that kind of stage, but actually you're talking about adults who are socially awkward. Right. This yeah. is interesting because, you know, you wouldn't think that. You'd think it'd be over by then. One would hope so, you know, but um, awkwardness uh, is a gift that keeps on giving <laughs> sometimes. It, one of the nice things about socially awkward kids is a lot of them will figure out a lot of things. So although they might have been awkward, um, I don't know, you know, uh, going to a restaurant or awkward. Were you awkward? Uh, oh, very, very awkward. Tell me about yeah. you growing up, what yeah. that was like. Yeah. So I was, I was a pretty nice kid. I think that was a bit of a saving grace for yeah. me. I was, uh, I was a nice kid. I was, I was pretty good at sports when I was younger. I think that helped too because I could just contribute <laughs> in that kind of way. Um, but it was around fourth or fifth grade, you know, I, I started to understand that um, I didn't process things as efficiently or as well as other kids did. And of course, social life gets a little more complicated uh, around that age, and especially in junior high, it starts to get a lot more complicated. And so, yeah, I, I thought, um, there's something about it. I used to think back and when I was a kid that 
in the same way some of my classmates struggled with math or struggled with reading, I struggled with uh, deciphering social situations. And that led to an early strategy, which was, well, you know, my classmates have to get extra tutoring or they have to work extra hard at it to be able to pass. <laughs> um, maybe I have to do the same thing. And so I adopted this idea early on. It was just going to be something in life that I had to be more observant about and more purposeful about. That is so interesting. So did you like, did you have somebody who was a mentor about social awkwardness? <laughs> yeah. Or did you just kind of observe and just kind of see where you were maybe well, going wrong? Well, my parents were quite good. Yeah. Uh, my parents were not awkward people. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were great at coaching me up <laughs> with some of these remedial skills uh, that I needed. I think there were certain teachers and coaches who helped along the way. Mm. But another thing that awkward kids will do is, in a semi-creepy way, uh, they have to keep this quiet, but they'll observe kids who are more socially competent. And they'll watch how they greet people, or they'll watch how they um, handle it when someone gives them bad news. And then they'll emulate these same interactions later on. I liken um, social awkwardness to like learning a second language. Mm -hmm. It's something that you have to start out with elements like vocabulary. Um, once those are memorized, you can think about the grammatical rules about how those words are sequenced. And then eventually you get proficient or fluent. And when that happens, of course, you don't have to think about what these things mean or how to order them. And you can be more fully yourself. So a lot of times awkward teens will say, it feels contrived um, mm. or it feels fake that I'm having to do small talk this way mm. or learn these social skills this way. And I say, it is contrived, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but that's what you have to do. And eventually you'll make it your own yeah. and do it in a way that's more, more you. But in the meantime, it's just, you know, you have to swallow your pride a bit and say, hey, I got to I got to practice these things in a way that a lot of my other peers don't have to. Some great advice there for the parents of awkward kids. And coming up, find out why being awkward is a gift and the fascinating new topic of Ty's next book. That's next right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. It's the page turner. The page turner. On Life Beats with Sally Musa and special guests celebrating Sharjah, the 2019 World Book Capital. Welcome back to my conversation with Ty Tashiro. He tells me here what he's writing his next book about. I love the topic already. And he also tells me why being awkward is actually a gift. But what's interesting about what you um, write is that you say that awkwardness is actually, it's awesome to be awkward. It can be. What yeah. do you mean by that? <laughs> There's a couple of things. Um, one of the interesting findings I stumbled across that turned out to be very consistent across multiple studies was that uh, social awkwardness is strongly associated with giftedness and creativity. Mm -hmm. And if you think about some of the folks you know who are really uh, gifted at something, they do tend to be a bit awkward a lot of times. And it stems from really this ability to be really focused in on something, to get you know really razor sharp and really passionate about a certain area of interest. Which we kind of call being geeky or it's, it's nerdy right. about it, exactly. but it's actually, that's going in depth into something, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So there's um, this term they use called deliberate practice. And one of the popular findings from that is 
If you do 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, you can get really good at something. Well, deliberate practice comes really naturally to awkward people um, because they get really, I mean, they really love what they love, you know, and they're really passionate about it. And there's almost like this inability to get bored <laughs> with doing the same thing over and over again until they master it. And so that can really be turned to their advantage to achieve some extraordinary kinds of things. And because of that, they don't mind being alone mm -mm. as well. They nope. kind of really love that time alone where they can think and they can really go into something. That's right. Yeah. So I'll tell parents that um, that's a active inner life in a, in a child's mind. And if a kid, for example, is really gifted, let's say at the violin, or really gets, gets gifted ballet or um, loves literature, let's say, being able to get lost in their mind is extra fun. Right, because they have an extra ability to envision these things or to create. What a wonderful thing to do. Uh, I can't sing, for example, and I sometimes think how gratifying would it be to just be able to uh, sing beautifully and get lost in that. Uh, you can't blame a kid for wanting to spend more time in that than maybe someone who's mediocre like me. Uh, but there's a balance there as well, and so. Well, you want to encourage these gifts and want to encourage the passions that they have. There also has to be the expectation that they do need to be social and they have to push themselves a bit and be uncomfortable. Uh, because if they want to be a well-rounded person, mm. that's going to be integral to their success. Absolutely. But I'm feeling like we can learn a lot from somebody who's awkward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, awkward people, I'm obviously a fan. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> Even now, I think I've figured out quite a few things, but I, I still, I, I love awkward people because uh, when I enter that interaction, I'm always looking for what's the thing that they're passionate about. And if someone's not awkward and they're wondering how they can talk to their awkward kid or employee or whatever, I always look for that quirky, geeky, kind of passionate thing. And then you cannot get them to stop talking. And to see the level of interest that they bring to these things, it's, it's actually quite inspiring. Fantastic. Is there another book coming from you? There is. Yeah, I'm working on it right now. It's in the early stages. It's not going to be about awkwardness or about uh, dating, but it will stay in the social realm. And uh, I think it'll be. I think it'll be a. I think it'll be a fun one. It'd be probably be kind of a. a an absurd tone is one of the things I've, I've realized uh, this book will have. Go on, tell us a bit more. Yeah. You're teasing us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's called Judgmental, and it's about the everyday silly, petty judgments <laughs> that we make of one another that really erode our social fabric. Um, so we're going to, you know, I'm going to avoid things like um, politics or race or some of these things that are important, obviously. but widely discussed right now but th there's all kinds of other things that we judge each other about that we really don't need to and that really create a lot of misery parenting you is know, one of them I'll, I'll tell you what already um the the category that's jumped out the most has been moms and moms get judged well they, they judge each other apparently and i'm amazed at how many men judge moms, right? Or mansplain to these moms, when it's really none of their business. Um, and it's just so widespread. I mean, you know, so I'm fascinated by this idea, like 
how did moms become one of the most judged <laughs> groups of people when in fact they're working harder than just about anybody else? So um, it's going to be a really rich topic and the more you get into each of these areas, the more you realize things have gotten totally ridiculous. <laughs> so I think there will be a good comedic element to it because um, the levels to which we've taken our judgmental attitudes is really ridiculous. It's just beyond absurd. I already love the book. I'm already well, lining up to get it. Thank you. And I'm, I already want to talk to you about it. When, this is fantastic. Taitashira, what an absolute pleasure. Super fun I talking really to this. you. Thank you. I cannot wait for that book. That was Taitashira, relationship expert and author. Coming up next on Life Beats, we talk the movie that received an eight-minute standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. And speaking of awkward... You have to hear the dad guy, Billie Eilish parody that has gone viral. It's epic. That's all next right here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.